Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we're looking into your word now. Grant us understanding and a tender heart so that when we receive your word, uh, that it may bring transformation and uh, the building up of our character to become more like your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, if you have ever done, undertaken a project, you know it's very easy to get involved with the tasks, to get so focused on the tasks and the milestones that you need to achieve that you forget about sometimes how you go about that. What I mean is, let's say you have a lot of things to do today. Or let's say it's Monday and you have a lot of things to do at work. There's a lot to catch up on. Well, sometimes because of the urgency that we feel on taking care of these tasks, we treat people a certain way. Um, and the way that we treat them is in such a way that we don't value the people as much as we value the completed tasks. Um, it's easy to do. And one of the things about Ezra that I really admire and that I pray through is the fact that he is undertaking this national scale, complicated building project. This project where the temple is being built and he is also building the culture of the people so that they begin to understand and know the Word of God and for their lives to reflect what the Word of God teaches. It's a big project. Um, but in the midst of all of his uh, task undertakings, he doesn't lose focus at what is most important. And what's most important is the heart. And what we see in today's verse is Ezra being grieved over sin. Ezra being grieved over sin. And the thing is, it's not his sin. The thing is, if we were to undertake projects today like this, right, in the church, because this is a religious context, right, Sometimes we would consider it awkward to grieve over sin in the midst of the, the undertaking, in the midst of the project. Because we get so focused on what needs to get done that we tend to feel like it's okay if we don't dwell on the fact that our hearts need to be in the right place the entire time. Right? One of the ways that this shows up in churches is that you have a, a team of people who will do a very good job with planning, and sometimes not, not so good, but they will be a planning team, but they will never plan to hedge their hearts. There's hardly any prayer, there's hardly any reflection, any meditation. There's hardly any kind of uh, comparing your heart state with the Word of God and seeing where the misalignments are. 
and humbling yourself before the God of heaven and saying, this project means nothing if our hearts aren't with God. It can be seen as socially awkward to do that in a planning meeting, right? Because you get focused on the logistics. What Ezra does is he doesn't shy away from the moral issues that are there, from the heart issues that are there. What's going on here is that when he brought these people back to Jerusalem to rebuild, the whole point was for them to start knowing the Word of God and to start following it. That was the whole point. But after four, about four to five months of doing the project, he got report, he got notice from someone that said, the people, they're not in line with the word of God. What they've done is they've intermarried. But God's word forbid, it, it forbid that. And so what was happening is Ezra is finding himself in a state where the project is going well. The building project, the renewing, the rebuilding is going well, but the people's lives are not in line with the Word of God. And what he does is he doesn't shy away from that issue. Instead, he brings it out into the open. And he does it in a way that is so loving. And it's, there's so much wisdom here. I want to share that with you. I want to show you that the way that Ezra handled this situation is not the same as our society and how we would handle this kind of a social situation. Our society, we would shy away from a response like this. We would shy away from Ezra's response of grieving over sin because it's too awkward, it's too uncomfortable, it's not really that important. We can't measure people's grief over sin. We can't measure repentance, but we can definitely measure other stones getting built up? Is the temple being more completed, right? Is it being furnished, right? We can measure that, and we like that. Ezra, when he heard that these people were intermarrying with non-Jews, right? Which, by the way, I'm going to run into, because I know some of you, you guys are thinking, what's wrong with that? Right? I'm going I'm to address that. But before I do, Ezra, when he heard that these people were basically disobeying God's word, right? Ezra, what he did was he identified with their sin. He identified with their sin. What that means is he basically said, in, in prayer to God, he said, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive us. Now, when was the last time that you in your workplace had a, a senior above you take credit for your mistake? When was the last time that <laughs> I see I see a lot of people, yeah, right, right? You see, this is not the way of the world. It's not natural for people to take the credit, I say credit, to take the blame 
for someone else's mistake. And not only like personally in a private conversation, but in a public sense, saying this is my sin, this is my mistake. You don't see that. But Ezra does that. And you know what that is? That's intercessory love. You know, you've heard of intercessory prayer. You know, praying for someone else. Right? This is intercessory love. Meaning, I am owning up to someone else's sin because of my love for them. And I want to lead them into a better relationship with God. Intercessory love. Do you know who does that? Not many people, but do you know who did that? Not only Ezra, but Jesus Christ himself. He took on the sins that belong to us. He identified with those sins in such a way that he was punished for those sins. You see, Ezra, he grieves over that. When was the last time it was natural for you to grieve personally over someone else's mistake? Now, it becomes easier when you know that person very well and that person is very close to you. But Ezra is doing this on a national scale. He's doing it for a bunch of people. He's saying this is our sin. This is our breaking of God's covenant. He grieves over it. I mean, if you look at him, there's so much love in how he expresses intercessory, this intercessory love for God's people. There's so much compassion, so much emotion. You look at his language, right? He prayed. That, that Hebrew word, by the way, for prayer, when it says Ezra prayed in verse 1, it specifically means intercessory prayer. It's not just a general word for prayer in this usage. It means a, pray, a prayer that is given for someone else. And he says in Ezra chapter 9, verses 13 through 15, this is the context, he uses the first person plural, meaning he uses us, our, instead of their sin. He says our sin. And he says, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt. And he says before God, behold, we are before you in our guilt. His actions also speak loudly. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of their abominations. That's the news that he heard. That's the report. They didn't separate themselves. And Ezra's response in chapter 9, verse 3 and 4, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, pulled hair from my head, and, and beard, and sat appalled. Now, that's very odd. But that was the expression of grief over sin. And usually, it's over your own sin. When you sinned against God, you usually do this before God. But he's doing it for the people's sin. It's not Ezra who intermarried. It's, it's the people. And he's doing this. He's saying, this is my sin. This is our sin. And then all who trembled at the words of God, at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while he sat appalled. So Ezra wept. He prostrated himself. If you look in verse 1, he tore his garment, he tore his cloak, he pulled hair from his own head and beard, you know. 
when you look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah also addresses the same issue of intermarriage, right? And he doesn't pull hair from his own head. He pulls hair from the people's head. <laughs> he pulls out their hair, saying, you should be repenting and grieving over your sin right now. Now you're thinking, who's the, who's, who did, who's the better one? Who did right? Right? Um, the thing is, there is no right. It's a difference in personality. Both are right. It's right for Ezra to, to represent his people not only in their successes, but in their failures. And it's also right for Nehemiah to convict people of their sin and say repentance needs to be there. You can't, it's not one or the other, it's both. And Ezra publicly grieves over sin. If you look in the ESV study Bible notes, it actually says for this verse that Ezra's public prayer and demonstration of grief brings a large number of people to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Now, you guys are probably thinking, what is so bad about intermarriage? Right? This is so archaic. This is so behind the times. Why is this sinful against God? Well, if you look in the Bible, if you look in the Old Testament, Marriage with foreigners was not forbidden in, in the law of Moses. It wasn't forbidden. What was forbidden was marriage with foreigners who continued to worship their gods. That was forbidden, right? Because the danger is, in the institution of marriage, when you marry someone who worship other gods besides God, that comes into the family, it changes the entire family dynamic, and it causes a rift to exist. So that was what was forbidden. And you see, this speaks directly into our modern-day values about family. Is it really true that we should believe that family is always first? Is that true? When you look in this passage, it's not. Family is not always first. When family becomes first and God is second, it causes people who love the Lord to grieve. It causes God to send his son to die in our place because of sin. Family is not always first. Family needs to be shaped by God's word. When it's not, when the word of God is just pushed aside and the American value of family and what that is gets erected in its place, that becomes sin. So you see, it's not about interracial marriage that's the issue. It's about interfaith. It's about who will you worship? Will you worship God or will you worship someone else? Ezra has public grief over sin. Jesus had public grief over sin. You know what's the great thing about Ezra's grieving? Ezra, when he grieved, there were a bunch of people who came to him and encouraged him and comforted him. 
they grieved with him. You know what's terrible about Jesus? His public grief over sin? No one was there. Except for a couple people. No one. He died, essentially, alone. He died with no one empathizing with him. And you see, Ezra, although he points to Christ, he's not Christ. He's not the same as Christ. You see, Christ becomes the greatest mediator for us. When you look in the pages of Scripture, before you look at Ezra, people like Ezra, and you're saying, I want to be like him, you should look to Christ and first say, what did Christ do for me? And because of that, how can I live for Christ? There's a second part to this sermon. I'm going to stop it here because of lack of time. What I want, what I want to show you is that we have lost a sensitivity to sin. I'm including myself in this. Right? The more we allow sin to become normalized, things like this, where cultural values begin to shape our mind to the point where we don't understand what makes the family sinful in God's eyes, right? The family in and in of itself as an institution is not evil. But when it pushes aside the word of God, when it dethrones God or when it pushes God's word down to second place and lifts the, fa- the institution of family to first place, That's when it becomes sinful. And when we're not aware of this, we lose a sensitivity to sin. And we need that sensitivity. We need that grieving. It's not awkward. It's necessary. Grieving over sin is absolutely necessary. You're saying, why would you want to preach a religion of shame and guilt? Why would you do that? Why would you want to try to manipulate and control people through shame and guilt? You see, this is something I've heard since I was in college, right? and it's still around. But people who understand the gospel understand that that's a straw man argument. The gospel, grieving over sin, is not a religion of shame and guilt. This is why. Because when Christ died on the cross, he fulfilled all the commands of God's word. He also took on all the punishment of God's word. That means you as a Christian, when you grieve over your sin, you are not facing a law that has still threatenings and punishments against you. So when you grieve over sin, you see the standard of the law, and you realize that God himself paid the price for all the sins that you are grieving over. And so in your grief, you are surprised by joy. That is very different from a religion that says, this is the law, this is the standard, grieve over your sin, and depending on how good your grieving is, how much you regret it, and how much you change, I will accept you. That's very different That leaves a law that is unfulfilled by Christ. A law that still has threats and punishments that are still open to everyone who grieves. And that's why when we grieve and when we repent over our sin, there's joy there. Because you realize you're facing a law that has not 
a law that is, you're not facing a law that has yet to be fulfilled. You're facing a law that has already been fulfilled in Christ 100%, completely. And so the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart. You hate the, you love the law, you love God's word, you love God, but you hate the fact that you can't live up to it. But you're not scared. Instead, you rejoice. And you're grateful. And you're humble. Because you realize that God, when he didn't have to, came and fulfilled all those laws and even took on all the punishments that should have come to you. And you see, grief over sin for a believer is very different for than someone who believes in a religion where your grieving and your repentance and your will, your strong will, to do better than what you've done so far, right? It's a world of a difference. That's why your grieving always results in joy. And that's why repentance is something that we don't need to be ashamed of because Christ has already publicly confessed all of our sin. He has shown us that we are, want, that we are free from our guilt and that no matter what people may think or say, you are already accepted by the blood of Jesus Christ as a child of God, completely forgiven for all your sins that you committed that no one wants to let go of, all the sins that you are committing now that no one knows of, and all the sins that you will commit in the future that you don't know of. All of that has been publicly displayed on the cross and completely satisfied in Christ. And that's why repentance is such a key attribute to being a Christian. Not because the grieving itself causes you to be a more moral or holy person, but because in your grieving, you realize that your heart is being changed more and more to love the Lord and have a desire to obey his law, not because of threat, but because of Christ's satisfying work on the cross. And so you face a law that has already been fulfilled with its punishments completely dismantled. And that's the joy of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us in such a way that we could never earn for ourselves, God. Creating us a genuine grief over our sin, realizing that in our grieving, we face a law that has been fully satisfied in Christ with all its punishments gone. It has been laid upon Christ. Let that never become an excuse for sin or for apathy or desensitization to sin. But Lord, let it always compel us to our knees to live a life of repentance that is filled with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.